Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. They were starving there on the farms of the Sarashtra, so they left. They left mothers, sisters, elders, everyone who had watched them grow. They left the paths worn by their own feet from jut to field to stream. Paths they imagined leading to the sea, but which they had never taken to the end. They left the morning birds, cobwebs they'd watched being spun. They had to leave because their fields were dry. The mullets stunted, the rice vanishing. They left behind their wives and the girls their sons might have married. They weren't so lucky as my Urmila when she accompanied her husband to America. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature at the New Books Network. And today I'm speaking to Jennifer Acker founder and editor-in-chief of The Common, a literary journal based at Amherst College, where she also teaches literature, creative writing, and editing. She earned an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars and has published many stories, translations, and essays. Her debut novel, The Limits of the World, spans four generations and three continents and is a powerful depiction of how we prevent ourselves, unwittingly and otherwise, from understanding even those to whom we are closest. Let's get to it. Hi, Jen. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Khalid. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the traditional question. How did you come to write this beautiful novel? I would say that the origins of this novel stretch all the way back to 1995. And in that year, I had graduated from high school and I was taking a year off before college. And I spent uh, about four months in Kenya. And during that time, uh, when I was living with a host family, and that was the first time that I realized uh, that there was an Indian community in East Africa. And I had no idea uh, that there was such a community who lived there. And it sparked my curiosity. I didn't, you know, I I didn't leap into any research at the moment, but it it surprised me. Um, And then when I, about maybe five years later, as fate would have it, I ended up dating a man, um, an American man born in the States, whose parents were from Nairobi and were part of this Indian community. 
And so then I thought, this is really fascinating. Here's my opportunity to learn more about this community and about the migration pattern. And I really started digging in and doing doing some reading. So that that was really the seed for writing a, uh, about a community with this particular uh, migration pattern, you know, these particular circumstances. Mm. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, let's start with what you can say about the wild animals that show up throughout the story. There's a gift shop that sells little sculptures. There's stories of the lions that devoured workers on the Ugandan railway. There's a safari, etc. What can you say? I love that you asked that question and that the animals were so salient to you because they were some of the earliest parts of the novel, particularly the chapter that details these man-eating lions, you know, the lions that are attacking the the workers that the British have employed to work on the railroad. And the British at this time had were employing Indians and and Africans to work uh, really hard <laughs> to uh, to build this railroad. And uh, there were these these lions, and this is true, that that were uh, stalking humans and were were eating them. And that was one of the first stories that I read when I began researching. Uh, this community of, of Indians living in East Africa. And, and they, you know, wild animals play such a large role in our imagination. And they were just uh, so vivid that I, I continued to think about them and, and bring them throughout the story. You do know that those, where those lions are right now, right? I do. They're in Chicago at the Field Museum. I've never That's seen right. them, though, but I, but I have, uh, I do know that they're there. Come to Chicago. We'll, we'll do a field trip to the Field Museum. So you do have a connection to the community of Gujarati-speaking Indians who migrated at, in the early part of the 20th century. Is your That's your husband's family. Is the Gujarati, could you talk a little bit about that, where they were from? Sure. Uh, so his family in, in particular are originally from Gujarat in the, uh, the western part of India, and it becomes very easy to imagine how this migration happened when you look at a map and you can see that the west coast of India is connected to the east coast of Africa by the Indian Ocean. And so for, for centuries, there, have been, uh, there has been uh, this travel pattern uh, or this migration pattern from, uh, from, from India to East Africa, but they were um, largely from very particular communities, uh, they or and they were they were traders, and they largely sort of lived along the coast, and um, and some of them even uh, were Arabic speaking, and there's an Arab influence into mm-hmm. um, uh, in, into Swahili, uh, which is an interesting thing to understand. Um, but the but the uh, the Gujarati m- migration was much later. And was largely sort of, as I detail in the book, starting mostly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and is, is, uh, occurs because of the British Empire. So at that time, the British are ruling both India and have colonies in Africa. And so they're moving labor all over the place, and they're promising better lives uh, to some of these Indian communities. Um, if they come and, and work in East Africa. And 
course, whether it's a better life or not, it's it's hard to say um, because the, the conditions were pretty grueling. Uh, but there was also tremendous poverty and difficult conditions in, in India as well. Mm-hmm. So we still haven't started talking about the main characters, but could you start out before we get to that? Uh, I was intrigued by the grandfather's recordings to his grandsons. They're interspersed throughout the book. And that's where we learn about this history. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So the grandfather is the one who, as you say, tells the history of this community. And it's important to remember that the Indian community in East Africa is very diverse because they have come from many different places and different castes and religious groups in India. And so he's trying to tell both the specific story of his family as well as gesture to some of the broader migration patterns uh, uh, between India and East Africa. And originally, I had written these sections in the first person plural as the we. And my idea was that it would be a chorus sort of narrating their communal history. And it was very tricky to do. I I found that um, we sort of lost some momentum because it was hard to get a lot of specificity when you're talking about a whole community. Some people do this very well. I did not find a way to do it uh, superbly in, in that attempt. So I changed it to the first person, and that allowed me to make this a character who is actually part of the story, who is related to the other people in the story. So we care more about him and about his thoughts and his experiences and what he has to pass on to his family. Mm-hmm. And then we meet Sunil as he and his girlfriend are looking for a new apartment. So could you discuss what's set in motion when the prospective landlady asks if they're married? So Sunil and his girlfriend, her name is Amy, they go to view an apartment. They're getting kicked out of their old one in Cambridge. And when they see this apartment, which is much better than they expected for their price range as graduate students, that um, the, the landlady is, is concerned uh, about their, their status of their relationship. She wants them to be married. And at first, Sunil thinks that uh, she is suspicious of them uh, because he's not white. And but it but what she says, the landlady, is that what she really cares about is that they are official in, mm-hmm. in some way. And so in that moment, in the spur of the moment, um, they say to the landlady that uh, that they're engaged. And that means that then they have to get married. I loved that scene. So now introduce us to Sunil's mother and explain this. Why does her brother allow broken shipments to be sent to her at her store? So uh, Ormila is a, a really, we might call her a, a tough woman. She has, um, she has big emotions, she has big ideas, uh, and she has a lot of conflict in her life. And she has uh, these uh, relationships with her family that she maintains long distance. So her brother is in Nairobi and she herself is in Columbus, Ohio. And she's running this store selling uh, import, import, imported goods from Africa. And she discovers that the, the shipments that she's receiving are, are broken. And it's her brother who has helped arrange these shipments because he also has a store in Nairobi. And it's, I don't imagine that her 
that her brother knows for sure that they're broken. It's just that he is not overseeing it. He's he's not careful. He's not carefully overseeing this relationship between the wholesalers and Ormila. And even though she has complained before, it's not really a concern of his. Uh, he is uh, something of a typical patriarch and his uh his sister sort of, she's doing her, you know, she has her little business, um, but he doesn't care very much about it. Hmm. So why are they in Columbus? How did you choose Columbus, Ohio? I wanted it to be in the Midwest. And, um, and so Columbus is a, is a nice city. I like it there. Um, and it seemed um, it's, it's a, also a big city that has a, a robust hospital that, uh, that the father, that Premchand would have trained at. And I think, you know, through um, Premchand as a doctor and when he immigrates to the States, of course, he has to become you know, certified as a, as a doctor to practice in the U.S. And his story, I think, was, um, is, was typical of a lot of, of immigrants uh, to this country who are sort of moved around from, from city hospital to city hospital as they move up in the ranks. And when he finally is able to, you know, to land somewhere, um, he sort of needs to be in the city. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Um, Sunil doesn't believe in religion, but his family follows the Jain religion. It's not all that well known. Can you briefly describe it and talk about the relationship of his parents to Jainism? Sure. Um, and so there is a, 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 a group of Gujaratis who are, who are Jain, and it's sometimes thought of as being similar to Hinduism, but it, it really is a different religion organized differently. Uh, while some of the same uh, gods and goddesses are recognized in in Jainism, they have a you know a very particular structure of um, of, of people who came before who's who were elevated, um, who achieved. Nirvana, who are able to uh, get rid of all of the the karma. So karma is sort of the energy that we accumulate in our daily lives. And uh, one analogy that that I read that I particularly like is like if, if there's a wet cloth, um, karma is sort of the dirt that sticks to the cloth. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good one. I yeah. also uh, also I think it's Jainism that they do not believe in all creatures have equal value. So they don't even kill a bug. Yes. Yeah, so there are some very strict 
sex or people particularly who uh, who are very observant, who may be monks, for example, in, in the sect. And so one of the main principles is ahimsa, uh, which is uh, do no harm, basically. And so in order not to do any harm to other creatures in this life, that, that's fairly restrictive. Uh, and so um, very observant people will wear masks over their mouths so that they don't inhale any bugs or microscopic particles. And they will often uh, sort of have a little brush that they uh, wipe the earth with or sort of to sort of scatter all the living organisms before they step on it. They wouldn't eat onions or garlic because they grow in the ground, and there are microorganisms that um, there are that grow in the ground. Uh, so that's all a, a very observant uh, way of practicing. And I don't personally know anyone who is as observant as that. Um, most uh, most chains are vegetarians, um, so that is one way of of practicing and um, not harming other animals. Uh, when they eat. But Sunil's mother practices the religion. It's important to her. There are some aspects of it that are important to her, but she's really not observant. Uh, there, there, she, she holds on to it as an identity because this is who she is. Uh, but she doesn't really know very much about the religion. I think one of the things that, that happens or, um, in the East African uh, community is that there were not a lot of a lot of people who were really brought up in the religion in a strict way who lived there. So lay people were the ones who sort of organized many of the rituals and and services. And so, with, especially with each generation, uh, the religion has become more of a cultural affiliation and less of a day to day practice. Mm-hmm. So, continuing on the theme of religion, which you you bring up a lot. It, in a really interesting way, Amy's parents have become fundamentalist Jew, Jews. You called it um, conversion that they actually converted uh, into being fundamental. Could you could you describe her reaction and, and explain why she's so upset about what her parents are doing? Well, Amy has grown up in a, in a family that was, as I was just sort of saying about Sunil's family in which Judaism was more of a familial and cultural association than a day-to-day element in their lives while they you know, might go to high holiday services or you know, um, observe some of, the, uh, some of the holidays throughout the year. It was, uh, it was not a major part of their lives and, didn't, and certainly there were no restrictions really on, on her life. Uh, and so when her parents decide that they want to become more observant, much more, it kind of freaks her out um, because it, it feels to her that these are, these are not the people that she knew. And her first reaction, as she tells Sunil, is that she breaks out into hives because she's so sort of upset about this. And, and I, I think it's, you know, anytime that our, our parents do something unexpected, especially if we've left home and gone to college and then they do something that they didn't used to do, I think it's it's quite nerve-wracking uh, for children who are growing up and, and building their own lives. And and so that's what happens to Amy. She's worried that her relationship with her parents is, is going to, ch- to change mm-hmm. um, and that maybe they won't accept the man that she loves um, because he's not Jewish. 
Um, maybe they won't uh, accept her. Maybe they won't love her as much as they did. I mean, she she's just uh, worried that things are going to be different and in a worse way. So the two of them are worried that about each other's about their both sets of parents about being accepted. Right. It's an, a, a theme throughout. So let's talk about Sunil for a little bit. He's writing this dissertation. He's tormented by this dissertation. And uh, his subject concerns moral beliefs among different peoples. It was fascinating. Can you just kind of give a rundown of that? I'll, I'll try to do it uh, briefly. But uh, what, what Sunil is exploring in his dissertation is um, this idea, or it's, it's his belief, given his readings and his own intuition, that uh, there is kind of a universality of moral principles uh, among among peoples. And as part of his dissertation, he's trying to come up with an explanation for this. Why would it be universal? And because he has spent some years in medical school and has uh, taken, um, sorry, not in medical school, but um, sort of in the pre-med track um, in college, um, and he's also taken an evolutionary biology class, uh, he's come across these ideas about the role of evolution in biology, but in particular in, in social behavior. And so he posits that evolution has also had a role in, in morality and in, our, in the, the moral judgments that we have. And the reason that this is a problem is because evolution as a, as a force is not particularly sensitive to, to the truth, which is to say that evolution sort of doesn't care whether what people are doing is right or wrong. Evolution just wants to perpetuate the species. Mm-hmm. So once you really connect evolution and moral judgments, it makes you worry that what we think is right isn't really right. It's just, we're, we've just been programmed to do that to perpetuate the species. It's, it just felt like a continuation of the themes about religion, just from a different view. Uh, I like how you wove that in. So now he has these, uh, his advisor, his dissertation advisor, and another professor that's really important to him. Can you talk about that a little bit? So one of his teachers is a, a professor named uh, Rivka Lieberman, and she teaches a class on ethics that uh, he becomes really invested in. And when the book opens, he's in fact taking this class again because he's he's stuck on his dissertation and he's hoping that this class will help him move forward. And she is important to him because she's the first one who is really expressive about believing in him. And you know, he's gotten into a prestigious program, but he still feels like a fraud and that he really shouldn't be there and that he got in because of some kind of affirmative action program and that he's really not as good as, as everybody else. And uh, she's the one who engages him in conversation, encourages his dissertation topic, and is, is really willing to work with him on the ideas in a way that he finds more helpful than, say, his advisor, who's a little more reserved. Well, may everybody working on their dissertation have a professor like her. <laughs> so... Um, we didn't even talk about the main situation, the, um, how the whole family travels back to Nairobi because of the cousin being in a terrible car accident. 
Um, can you touch upon the relationship between Sunil and his cousin Bimal? So uh, Bimal is roughly his age and uh, just a little bit older, just about a year older than, than Sunil. And he has always grown up with his, his mother sort of pointing to Bimal and saying, why can't you be more like him? Like he's the, he's the example that uh, his mother points to when she's dissatisfied about what Sunil is, is doing. Um, and then uh, Sunil discovers as a result of this trip that um, Bimal is actually his brother, his, uh, his full brother, um, and that he was born uh, while his mother was sort of taking a break uh, from her marriage. Um, unbeknownst to her, she was pregnant. And when she had the baby, she gave it to her brother in Nairobi to raise. And so this is pretty earth shattering for Sunil, who has grown up as an only child and fairly far away from family. And he sort of also suddenly understands why his mother is so attached to this cousin of his. So far, we've discussed a number of major themes in your novel, animals, religion and morality, place, all the different places that think, geography of place. And the fourth subject that I thought is incredibly important is food. So I have a few examples here. Ermila eats a third of the special dessert in the middle of the night when they get to Nairobi. Or the scene where, quote, she peeled the skin of a ripe mango away from the flesh and bit in. The rush of sweetness calmed her. Juice slid down her fingers. Ormila really has a sweet tooth <laughs> and she has a lot of um, energy in her body, sort of like all of these conflicting emotions and conflicting thoughts. And she finds that that sweets calm her. She's sort of a compulsive sweets eater. And that when, when she's stressed, uh, she'll find something sweet to eat. And so that's why when, you know, when she can't sleep in the middle of the night, she, uh, you know, she takes this dish out of the fridge and, you know, eats so much of it in, in one <laughs> eats a third of it and sort of in, in one go. And so that is particularly important to her. But also, you know, these particular foods that um, that are part of her upbringing, the foods that she makes, the foods that her sister makes, are, are part of her culture. And it's part of, uh, for her, what makes her Indian. And so she's often sort of pointing these foods out uh, to Amy and um, and also to her son and feeling regretful when, um, if, you know, if he doesn't like something, if Sunil doesn't like something. And it's very important to her that people like the food because in some way it means that they will like her. Mm -hmm. But there's also a, an intriguing scene where Sunil runs off and gets a, a hamburger. And when he comes back, they can, they can all smell flesh on him. And it ends up and, 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 you know, they, he ends up leaving the country because of it. It's important to you. It, <laughs> it is important. It is important. Yeah. I think, um, well, I suppose I did grow up in a family that cares a lot about food as well. Um, and it, and food is so culturally significant yeah. and it's one of the, it's one of the ways that we, that we learn about other places and even other languages and other people and it also is a communal activity, of course. And so if we can all sit down to a meal together, that's symbolic of all being able to you know, share some, some ideals as well. Yeah. So now Sunil and Amy are in Kenya after the car accident. 
they've all gathered, and Sunil has been given an extension on his dissertation. Why can't he just sit down and finish? He wishes he knew. It's, um, I think, the he has trouble writing. He and he has, you know, sort of trouble moving forward. He's very, he's intimidated uh, by the field, and as I mentioned, he feels like a fraud. And for those reasons, which is, I think, endemic among graduate students, um, he has a, he has a hard time going forward. But he also has a hard time because of the particular topic. So he's been, you know, putting forward this uh, this idea of morality that it's shaped by evolution, in a way in the in a way that the the consequences of that, if it were true, would mean that we have, you know, we have no idea. Uh, we humans have no idea whether our moral judgments are are correct or not. You know how we have no idea whether we could even know that our moral judgments are true. We're sort of, you know, uh, captive by these evolutionary forces, and because it has been so important to him in his life to be able to sort of uh, defend himself and to have, you know, relationships with other people that are fair and that he that, and that are equal. Like he is thinks of himself as being a very moral person. And so, and especially in how, how you treat people and how, how he should be treated uh, as an individual. Mm-hmm. And so his idea for his dissertation is directly at odds with how he wants to live his life. And that just sends him spinning. So the last um, major component of the book, in, in my view, was uh, judgment that the characters are always judging each other, each from the prism of his or own set of beliefs and worldviews. And you have this dance of judgment going on. Can you address that? They are judging each other. That's, that's true. Each person in the book has an idea of how life should be lived and how we should treat other people. And uh, and it is one of the main themes of the books that of the book that it, that is what people are most often arguing about in this book. What the characters are are arguing about, and they each are seeing things from their uh, from their own point of view. And sometimes that's shaped by um, in the current moment by religion, as in with Amy's parents, or with Sunil, it's uh, shaped by the study of philosophy, or with Amy, who is a little more pragmatic who sort of wants people to have healthy relationships as much as they can without, um, without steamrolling other, over other people. So they do each have a, a view about, about how to interact with, with other people. And it seems to me that that's the, the fundamental question of, of all of our lives. Um, and understanding how those beliefs are shaped maybe points uh, or maybe goes some way towards uh, making those relationships better in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well, it really is a, a lovely book. And I know you're going to be spending some time going around speaking about it. And now I'd like to ask you the traditional new books question. What's next for you? Well, thank you so much for having me um, and talking about my book. This is really a pleasure. And as for what's next, I'd say there are a couple of things that I'm thinking about. Uh, one is that I have um, 
a sort of an essay-length memoir coming out as a Kindle single from from Amazon, and so that's really in the the personal nonfiction realm, uh, which uh, was a little bit of a surprise to me. Um, but that will be coming out in the fall and next spring, and so I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, and it's primarily about um, uh, chronic illness and marriage and the relationship of, of those two things, particularly in my own life. And on the fiction front, I'm thinking about um, a novel that takes place in a small town. I think I'm going the opposite direction of this global book with multiple continents and you know people spread out all over the place. Um, I grew up in a small town in Maine, and I live in a small town in Massachusetts, and I think there are incredibly interesting and humorous and worthwhile dynamics um, in, a, in a small town community. So that's what I'm thinking about next. All good things. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining me today. Best of luck. Thank you so much, Khalid. This was terrific. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network, now a Lit Hub partner. Again, I'm GP Gottlieb, and I've been talking to Jennifer Acker, author of The Limits of the World. Join the network to learn about new books of all kinds and to hear my previously recorded podcasts. Goodbye until my next conversation for the New Books Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.